I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. How are you? Welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about work and our passion for work. Although... (laughs) I have to say, it's a Friday afternoon night. It's a Friday night in Canada before a long weekend. And so we want you to feel our passion for this show because we're still doing it. (laughs) It's true, before the holiday weekend. Okay, so here's my question about that. In psyching oneself up for a Friday evening and a podcast and whatnot, I thought, what I need, like, I need deep, deep pop to help me out here, to get me energized. Even Destiny's Child was not going to get it done. I had to go to uh, Kylie Minogue, Love at First Sight. Like to me, that is the the psych up tune. That is so made of cotton candy that it will actually get you up and out the door. Uh, but can you top that? Is there, is there another one? Uh, Spice Girls always works for me. Oh yeah. Okay. Like, like wannabe or something deeper? Um, wannabe, but strangely enough, um, for some reason, the slow jam always gets me going. (laughs) That one always be there. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's like, that's not even album one. Uh, I thought you were going to talk about the, you know, to become one and how scandalous it was when all the 11 year old girls figured out what that was about. Yeah. Uh, that was a good one too. Really? Stop like, right now is good. Yeah. Oh, these are late. I need some like '90s cuts in here. You know what we should play? Yeah. So can we do a clip? You know what gets me going? A good like Brandy and Monica, the boy is mine. Yes. Oh my! And I love that sketch on Saturday Night Live last week. Yes. Or was it the Chris Pine week? It was, it was Chris, Chris Pine. Pine. Yes. He was good. He, he was, was good. good. He yeah. committed to that. I saw somebody say he had like leveled up in the Chris's. Like, yeah. Oh he yeah. Had, uh, that was a big surge. Yeah, not bad, not bad. I mean, it, even among the Chris's, he and Chris Evans still blend together a bit for me, but uh, that helped. Chris Evans. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Chris Evans, to me, is the low Chris now. You just frowned. You didn't know which one Chris Evans was That's for right. a second. I needed, <laughs> I needed a minute to differentiate. But yeah, I would say right now, Chris Evans for me is the bottom Chris. Wait, what has Chris Hemsworth done for us lately? Why is he not the bottom Chris? Um, Other than we smoked beside him once a long time ago when we smoked cigarettes. Hi, Mom. Was it that Chris? Yeah. When was that? Oh, in LA? No. When did we smoke beside Chris Hemsworth? Let's just do a little pause here. Yeah. Oh, oh, the that was the TIFF CAA party, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we, we- smoked beside him. Did we? Well, you did. I wasn't smoking. I would never. (laughs) No, that was Evans. No, it was not. I will go on my life. We have to go back and talk to people who know and get the guest list. I know for sure. No, that was Evans. No, dude. That was the first time I knew why I had to care about a Hemsworth. 
Uh, and that was because I could tell them apart <laughs> for the first time. That was the one where there was a second room and the bar was in that room and like Jason Momoa and Zoe Kravitz were there. There was definitely Jason Momoa and Zoe Kravitz <laughs> right. getting a little bit like… Right, that was the same party. Like, yes, 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 Yeah, yes. but no, it was out the back, like down a little set of stairs. Fuck. I thought that was Evans. Nope. Promise. Anyway, I also think, the for point. the record, Chris Evans would never be out the back on the smoking patio. I'm pretty sure he smokes. Whatever. Like, but are you saying he's not, like, the what he presents is not, like, the guy who hangs out in the smoking section? If he was, would he be leveling up on your level of Chris's? Mm, still no. <laughs> See? Still no. Um, but yeah, right now, was that Hemsworth? See, I'm now I'm going to, like, we've you. talked, I'm going to ask Daniela tomorrow. Um, what? Why? Why can't I say that? I don't know. Can you? That feels like it's it's outing her. Well, she doesn't work for them anymore. I don't know, but still, like, you don't want to be the kind of person who, like… You can maybe decide to cut all this yassing. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, I'm so… I'm going to ask her, though. Uh, what were we saying? Oh, yeah. So, how did we get from, like, hype jams to Chris's? <laughs> Brandy and Monica. That's Brandy a, that's and Monica. A, that's a clear there trajectory right there. Yes. I would really appreciate a little Brandy and Monica interlude before we continue the podcast. Can we afford it? Probably not. But here's the thing, though. No, it actually does relate. It's not an unrelated sort of preamble. Uh, because when you talk about the order of the Chris's, there's the implication that obviously the order or the hierarchy of the Chris's. Wait, who's the top Chris? Isn't the top Chris Hemsworth? Ugh. No, thank you. Why? Um, I think he's pretty funny. Okay, but what's he done lately? He hasn't done anything, but those little snippets that he keeps doing for Thor are pretty good. Okay, but uh, the fact that he hasn't done anything should bump him down a level. And Chris Pratt, who made a big mistake a few weeks ago and then was like, sorry guys, I was an asshole, that like should bump him up at least one notch. Couple of big mistakes. Couple of big mistakes, but like decent apologies. Ugh. Do we give credit for apologies? You, yes. You said one time that it's like people don't know how to apologize. I know, but I mean, I feel like that means you just get back to zero. It doesn't put you to like to plus 10. Meanwhile, poor Chris Pine, who actually did the work <laughs> on Saturday Night Live, is like, hi, I'm right here. Still. Um, I, yeah, I, I still like Hemsworth. I think Hemsworth is probably the one with, I like the fact that Hemsworth, I like the fact that Hemsworth has gone away for a while. I'm good with that. Fine. Let's say fine. I think that Pratt is oversaturated. Oh, I don't disagree with that. And frankly, I could do without all the Chris's. Uh, and uh, shout out to a friend of mine who always talks about the five Chris's, uh, Hemsworth, Pratt, Pine, uh, the one I'm forgetting, Evans, and Bradley Cooper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good, right? Uh, but it is interesting when we talk about this ranking and this hierarchy and whatnot, because we all know about kind of the, you know, if you're hot, you're hot. And if you're not, or you can't get work or whatever, then you're kind of on the bottom. But sometimes, not that often, it doesn't work quite the way it should. And we've never figured out why, right? Like, I'm not the only one who has talked about her love of Mandy Moore. And Mandy Moore should be a bigger star, uh, or should have been, before This Is Us. Hi, Allison. Hi, everybody uh, who loves Mandy Moore with me. But... You know, there are lots of people where you're like, okay, they have the thing, so why don't they have the thing? So I sent you the trailer for The, the Glass, Glass Castle. Castle. Yeah. Uh, and I should say, I think that was, I think you made me read that book. I'm pretty sure. 
I don't know if I made you, but I think that I was like, yeah, we should know about this. Or this is something that should be like in the background for reference text. Oh, I'm surprised because didn't you love it? Um, I feel like my, it's weird. I think I really, if I remember, I really enjoyed it on first read. Mm -hmm. It gets less and less for me as time goes on. In retrospect or do you reread it all the time? In retrospect. I uh, was really surprised when I read it at how much I liked it, but uh, caveat emptor, I love a dysfunctional family story, and also I had been expecting it to be something about, like, a fantasy world involving, like, a Madeline L'Engle story. Like, The Glass Castle, to me, automatically means science fiction. So, uh, or fantasy, I should say. So, uh, if you don't know, if you haven't read the book, Jeanette Walls is a contemporary columnist. She wrote for like like TV gossip for a long time. She was one of the gossip columnists at MSNBC's The Scoop. And she was like one of the best, if not the best. Yeah. But she was, uh, but, but TV gossip as opposed to sort of uh, celebrity lives, I think. Sort of the doings of the network yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I think it became also like as she became more influential and more people reading her and more people started reading her, she went into movie stars too and just your like general dating gossip. Right, right, right. Um, The Glass Castle, though, if you haven't read it, is a departure from all that. It's an autobiography of her young life when she uh, was one of several children born to, do you call them drifters? Uh, You know, kind of uh, people of no long-term fixed address who had a real casual relationship with earning livings and so forth. And she sort of embodies the whimsy and the troubles of, of growing up that way. And, you know, obviously her sort of corporate New York media job is anathema to, to the way her family lives. Yeah. I think the, I think I remember the dad was an alcoholic. I mean, probably. I think the dad had a lot of things. The dad. And so his, he never could hold down a job. But it wasn't just like your basic, uh, alcoholic story in that he was also the guy who would lasso the moon right? Like he kind of taught them to dream and imagine and made a big game out of the fact that they often had to leave apartments in the middle of the night. And they, you know, she sort of implies that it was a long time before she learned what her family really was and how they seemed to everybody else. Yeah. You know, obviously the kind of guy who sold uh, misfortune as adventure. Oh, we have to go in the middle of the night as children, they're like, oh, this is an adventure. In reality, it's I've just lost my job. They're coming after me. They're evicting us. We got to go. So, you know, as you said, certainly a captivating read, certainly on first read. If you hadn't read it, I really recommend it. And now the movie is is coming out and we saw the trailer. And the lead character in the trailer uh, is Jeanette herself. I don't know if they've called her by her own name or what. Um but the lead actress playing her is Brie Larson. And that should feel different than it does. I, you know, Brie Larson has had, I think, a couple of roles since her Oscar-winning role for Room. Uh, but maybe nothing that's been sort of a movie that's about her. And you're waiting for the post-Oscar role and you're waiting for the thing that says, yes, I am and continue to be an Oscar-winning actress. And it looks beautiful and there's lots of like really well done hair, 
But I don't know. I'm not seeing movie star. Well, it's funny you say that because, first of all, Jennifer Lawrence was attached to the role and ended up dropping out for whatever reason, scheduling this and that. And so Brie Larson stepped in. When Brie Larson stepped in and then when the Oscar or whatever order that happened in, immediately they looked at the immediately they looked at the cast, Woody Harrelson, Naomi Watts, and they said, oh, well, this is going to be something. And as they're shooting, people were projecting, well, this could be a contender. But then the trailer comes out and I think they've announced the release date. It's August. Hmm. Not typically a contender release date. No. And so when you think about the story, it's based on this award-winning novel, a really… Not novel, or, we sorry, should say. That's right. Uh, an award-winning book, a really, really successful book. I think the last time I even uh, was looking into The Glass Castle, the book, it had sold something like, I don't know, three million copies or over two million copies. Like a lot, a lot of people have read this book. It is the kind of book that when there are 10 books available to buy at the relay at the airport, it's still one of them, even now, even 10 years or more after its release. It's, uh, you know, it's the kind of book that people like to read and like to talk about. But as you point out, the trailer is wall-to-wall Woody Harrelson. In fact, even when Brie Larson is on screen in a series of lovely hairdos, there's really a lot of hair in the trailer. Uh, It's Woody Harrelson's voiceover. It's him sort of casting the story. And that may be how they've decided to to write the script. I don't know. I haven't read it. But what happens when your Oscar winner is less powerful than you hope they'll be? I mean, you know, Jennifer Lawrence would have been there too. And maybe she dropped out because maybe there's not much to the role. I have no idea. But it just doesn't feel like the thing that you follow up your Oscar with. Yeah. And I, look, maybe it does feel like the thing that you follow up your Oscar with in the sense of it's supposed to be a drama with some comedic moments, a deeper look at life, maybe a more weighty, um, maybe a more weighty Wes Anderson kind of story. You know, it does have that Wes Anderson kind of element to it with the whimsy and the adventure and the moving off to the middle the, and the moving off in the middle of the night and the, what is that expression you use? The rope of the moon or whatever? Oh, lasso the moon. Sure. There you go. But I saw the trailer and I was, it was a shrug. But that's the thing. I don't think that those elements that you're talking about, some whimsy and some comedy, I don't think they made it into the movie. Or at least they didn't make it into the trailer. So I don't know whether we're talking about a trailer that doesn't represent the movie. Which can happen. Or a movie that doesn't represent the book. But when you combine all that with the release date too, you know, a film that had this kind of expectation going in and this kind of cast coming off of Brie Larson's Oscar journey, for lack of a better word, it's a weird release date. It's that August, I think it's even like August 11th. It's at no man's land, right? It's oh, not even, yeah, that's not going to do anything. Right? Because it's it, sometimes at the end of August, you can you can argue that it's closest to festival season. Yeah, September 30th, perfectly acceptable. But August 11th is a dead zone. So I, I don't know if it's counter-programming and they're saying, oh, like, you know, maybe people will be so tired of big budget explosion movies that they'll want to see like a family drama. But uh, I don't know. Like, it, it, I, and that is a decision they've made, the studio themselves. So it could be, have they seen it and they think, you know what, 
we don't think this is going to play and we want to bank our key, other key release dates deeper into the fall for our award movies, right? And sure, that can be a studio strategy and that's fine. I guess the question is, what does this do for an Oscar-winning actress? What does this do for the career of somebody who's still super young? Like, is she even 30 yet? Probably not. I don't think she's 30 yet. I mean, you're going to Google that. And Um, so she has an entire giant career in front of her in theory. And look, I'm not trying to indict her. She's entitled to movies that don't go places as much as anybody else. And as I, even though I keep saying she's an Oscar winning actress, you know, she, as you point out, took this role in and around the same time as the win. It's not as though this was a script that she picked up uh, from the bathtub with Oscar by her side, right? Like this is a kind of thing that was sort of on her doorstep uh, in and around the same time. So I'm not trying to blame her for her choice, but it does kind of make me wonder what her next few years are going to look like. Well, it's 27, the age, which is right around um, Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone, Mm -hmm. who are her... Re, like actual contemporaries who now are also Oscar winners, right? So you've got breathing these three. down her neck is what you're trying to say. <laughs> no, so you've got these three. You've got Emma Stone, Brie Larson, Jennifer Lawrence, and the reason why this comes to mind is because in preparation for our podcast today, I actually read the Brie Larson Vanity Fair article. She covers the current or the like the most recent issue of Vanity Fair, which has been out for weeks now. And to your point, Duanna, I didn't read it. I was like, whenever it came out, I was like, oh, yeah, Brie Larson's on the cover. It's my job, really, to read the Vanity Fair feature profile every month. Because typically, I mean, there are 12 issues, right? And all 12 of those issues feature people we talk about on this podcast specifically with big enough names and all that clout. And like I said, if we weren't doing it for the podcast, I would not have read it. No, you wouldn't. And, you know, in your defense, uh, not that you need any defending, but if there had been a huge quote from that Vanity Fair article, if we'd heard something, if something had happened, if she had, you know, thrown Casey Affleck under the bus, again, not that that's her responsibility, we would have heard about it. We would have known. The fact that it's been out and nobody's talking about it means it's kind of a nothing burger of a feature, as you would say. A little bit. And to go back to Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone… It is the kind of article where the reason why you may be hooked into it, if you even bother to read it, is because right in the headline, it gives you Brie Larson is best friends with Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone. So they're almost saying to you, you need to read this article, not just because Brie Larson is that important, but because she's best friends with the two other people you care about. Like you get an added bonus. It's two for the price of one. Or three for the price of one. Right. Right. And like, here, I'll show you because they have it right, right at the top. Um, You know, right in the opening paragraph, um, inside Larson's years of scraping by the awards season madness and the group that supported her, including Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone. Now, the next time Jennifer Lawrence is on the cover of Vanity Fair and the next time Emma Stone is going to be on the cover of Vanity Fair, I, I can almost guarantee you that in their opening paragraphs, Jennifer Lawrence and or Brie Larson are not going to come up. No. 
um, because you don't need to. No, you'll talk about their latest controversy, uh, the thing that their high school boyfriend says that shadows the new role that they're in. Uh, We'll talk about their love lives and the problems they're in and the ways that they've realized that they are, they've been turned towards 40-something directors because they're so preternaturally old for their age and anything except who are your best friends because best friends don't sell magazines. And so what we are coming around to, it's interesting that you bring this up because my first consciousness of Brie Larson, the first time I thought, oh, do I have to care about who this person is? Uh, was a profile on her and Shailene Woodley. Uh, and they were best yes. friends. That's right. I don't know if they still are best friends. There was definitely talk of sunning vaginas that came up around yeah. then. Uh, it was like wear granola together. Yes. That was the purpose of that joint article. Yeah, but again, it looked like a tag-along. And at the time, I remember thinking, uh, may the writer and uh, the gods forgive me, I remember thinking, oh, Shailene Woodley is trying to, like, tag her friend along for press. That's kind of nice in a way, Uh, not knowing that the friend would be an Oscar winner inside of five years. And we really enjoyed Brie Larson this Oscar season for perhaps, you know, odd reasons. But is she too boring to be a movie star? That's what we're getting at here. Uh, Yes, but no. Like, what's interesting a few things here is that when you do read the Vanity Fair article, it's still not that compelling, but there is actually um, a common thread between Brie Larson and Jeanette Walls. Brie Larson has been extremely candid about the fact that she grew up quite poor. There's a quote about how um, uh, only a few years ago, she says, she was living off the food in the film festival welcome gift bags. Um, she was, you know, very, very recently because Room, Room didn't really hit until it hit. And I don't know that it hit. It was an independent film. So it's not like she made like tons of money from it. Well, and let's get even realer. That movie is not going to bring all the boys to the yard. You know, like it's yeah. not a crowd pleaser. So I believe her when she said that, you know, she's not doing the the kind of money that Jennifer Lawrence and even Emma Stone are doing. Um, so when you sort of compare that to the Jeanette Wall story, you, it doesn't take a genius to see the common ground, right? I, I thought that was interesting, although the timing is weird because, man, tell me that story before The Glass Castle comes out. Then you've got something. How do you mean? Like, when should she have saved it for? Well, this Vanity Fair feature itself was pegged to a film, a very small film called Free Fire, that came out just a few weeks ago. Yeah. That was initially screened at TIFF. Joanna screened it at TIFF and reviewed it. And then, whatever, it it comes out six months later. And listen, it was a well-reviewed film, but nobody talked about it. Nobody cared. Um, This came and went. So she gets the slot in Vanity Fair in support of a film that's really not the one that anything is riding on, right? If you're talking about what's being, I don't know, prioritized, the Glass Castle is the one you want the Vanity Fair profile for. But not if it's being released in August. And again, all this is kind of above her pay grade. These are publicists and studio bosses who decide things and move things around. And if they really needed to push the Brie Larson story to August, they could do that. If that was, I'm sure that there are promises that could be made to Vanity Fair to get things switched around. 
But I think what we're coming down to, and I feel awful talking this way, but it seems like it's not worth it to anybody. I'm I'm wondering who is investing in the in the Brie Larson business and what choices they would make next. Well, Marvel is investing in the Brie Larson business. Of course. She's she's Captain Marvel. Yeah. So they're starting to shoot in January 2018. Um I, I think that was the last I heard. Um, she, like, Captain Marvel is the first standalone female superhero from the Marvel Universe. Clearly, it's a big deal. That's a huge deal. So I need you to start dropping me some sex scandals in the media already. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, and so given that it's such a huge deal and we're so meh about the person who's playing Captain Marvel... I don't know, like, how do you, is this a good thing? Can it be a good thing? Can you be like, no, 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 let's not care about her until we have to care about her and suddenly she's Captain Marvel and it's like, woo! I mean, that's a really generous uh, outlook. You're saying that when we get there, when Captain Marvel needs us to care, that we're going to get all the juicy material and that maybe she's even savvy enough to hold it back uh, and to drop it when we need it or... Uh, that they'll have a Cracker Jack publicist working on her by then. As you point out, there's time. Uh, and there are many, 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 many people who are actresses, you know, who don't need to be movie stars, who don't need to have sort of the razzle-dazzle around them. This has nothing to do with who she is as a performer. But I want there to be. I want to be excited about her. I want to be able to get more jazzed about what we have going than we do right now. Do you care about the fact that she just directed her first feature film? If I if I knew, like that should, yeah, get that out in front. And again, I don't want to be so governed by gossip, but where's her Lenny letter? Where's her, you know, piece that tells me something about that? Uh, you and I talked a little bit about a, a piece in Lenny today where, uh, an, uh, where Amber Tamblyn, uh, an actress who's, you know, n- interesting and well-respected, but nobody would call her even B-list, right? Uh, Sort of revealed all this stuff about a director who uh, came on to her when she was only 13 years old, and it's like deeply gross. And almost the liberty of doing that when you are low-level enough that nobody's going to investigate who that is. Um, It gives her angles, and I want to see more angles from Brie Larson than we have. Yeah, I'm I'm really I mean almost the lack of edge and the lack of sharp angles unless they're related to Casey Affleck is becoming a mystery to me that I don't know that I need to follow. Well, that's the thing. Like you say mystery and I'm thinking, "Oh, you're being so generous. Like you're you're acting like she's a an enigma being ready to to figure out." But Well, I would like to. I would like to believe that you know, we're either too naive or they know better, right? All the people who are dumping all kinds of money into this. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, um, she's not getting stupid money yet for Captain Marvel, but she got something. I think It's not that, indie movie money either. No. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not like Scarlett Johansson money. Right. But it's good money. I think it was $5 million. Right. Um, and and we You know, talked guys, about, like just, just basic money, $5 million. Which when we've talked about before on the show, $5 million, how much a cut, how much of that cut goes to agents and whatever? Oh, God. If she is an agent and a manager both, it's 25% gone. There you go. So, and then on top of that and this and that and the other, right? Yeah. So, 
Um, so she's not making stupid money, but obviously there are people who make these big decisions and have lots more money invested in the bigger picture of Captain Marvel who are, who are saying to themselves, she's the one. So I just want to like check back with ourselves and be like, are we missing something? Or are we just waiting to have it revealed to us? Well, look, one of the things that I value about myself that's probably a shortcoming and I shouldn't value is I'm not much of an archivist. Uh, you're better at it. So tell me about Hillary Swank, for example. Two-time Oscar winner, not so much else in terms of a, a, a character or a, a shtick or a personality. Uh, I mean an outsized uh, movie star personality. Does that hurt? Does anybody care? If the studios still make mo- make money off her, does it matter? I I don't know if that was a good example because like uh, it bites my ass that Hillary Swank has two Oscars. But bites my ass. Why? I, uh, okay, but no, but you may like, as well like why? It's Hillary Swank. I know, but two times can't be wrong. Once is a fluke, Marissa Tomei. Twice is an Oscar winner. Annette Benning has zero. I know, but that's a thing by now. She's Susan Lucci at this point. Oh, um, I, yeah, like I, I also don't care about Hillary Swank. Okay, so then you're proving my point. Um, you but know. Hillary Swank isn't Captain Marvel. Like Hillary Swank isn't doing, after winning her first Oscar, Hillary Swank wasn't like, nobody was like, hey, be Catwoman. Okay, but she had a bajillion rolls running down her face. Like, she was able to be whomever she wanted to be, right? I don't know. They weren't throwing tent poles at her. Like, this okay. is a tent pole. Okay, it also was not the superhero time at the time. Yeah, but not even like, oh, may, okay, maybe she like, they threw a fucking Gerard Butler rom-com at her. That's what they threw at her. Remember that? There was like this rom-com with... She's in the movie with Gerard Butler, and he writes her letters from oh, the grave. Yes, it's like 13 it, Little Envelopes or something, not to be confused with 13 Reasons Why, but it's basically the same concept. Right? Like, he just writes her from the grave? Sort like, of. From the it afterlife? Was a book. It was or, a Cecilia Ahern book. Fuck. Like, I, it was something. Anyway, so <laughs> that was the root in the past, which is, listen, that actually, now we're getting somewhere. So 15 years ago, you win an Oscar, and the money route for you is rom-coms. A giant rom-com. At and now, which, yeah. you get a superhero movie, or right. a Hunger Games, or an IP franchise. A franchise. A trilogy. Yeah, that's the thing. You sign on once, you're there forever. A rom-com has been and gone. You can get through a rom-com in 11 weeks. But your point is well taken. Maybe Brie Larson would be better at a rom-com. Maybe we could see a side of her. Like, have we ever seen her giggle? Um, nope. I'm going to just call it. Never seen her giggle. Um, Never seen her dance. Never seen her do like a, like a weird, awkward overbite move at a Vanity Fair party. Like she's hoist. And I really, I hear myself. I do. I hear myself kind of looking for more than what should be required of somebody whose talent is acting. But I want some more. I want something else. Okay, let me give you something. Go. So in the Vanity Fair article, and this is the one thing. Remember I said there were a couple things that jumped out at me. One was like the common ground that she had with Jeanette Walls. Uh-huh. And the second thing was um, they go in and talk about uh, Marvel offering her the Captain Marvel role. And so I'll just read you the part. Um, making the decision that much more daunting for Larson, that's obviously the decision to take on the role, 
Marvel demanded that she discuss the offer with no one. Sorry, what? Yeah. Okay, I'll read you the whole paragraph, right? Blah, I'm blah, already blah, mad. Blah, blah. I'm already I mad. Know. <laughs> Here we go. So blah, blah, blah. Um, so let me, I'll just give you the big, big points in this paragraph. Um, while flattering, being the face of a franchise of this magnitude is a daunting endeavor, and Larson did not automatically say yes, even though it could be very lucrative. Industry spec is that her fee is not over anything over $5 million at this point, but there could be other movies, blah, 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 blah. And she worried about increased exposure, fans, social media trolling, blah, blah, blah. Also, making the decision that much more daunting for Larson, Marvel demanded that she discuss the offer with no one. It took me a really long time, she tells me. I had to sit with myself, think about my life and what I want out of it, blah, blah, blah. So then she talks about how she had to think by herself whether or not she wanted to do this. But that's what jumped out at me. So they made an offer. They were like, we want you to be the first ever female tentpole, blah, 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 in the Marvel universe. But hey, you can't talk about it with anybody. What does that mean with anybody? I, with who? I doesn't. So I can't give you more information than what's here. <laughs> well, I would okay. like, I, I mean, but then that's irresponsible journalism. Marvel demanded that she discuss the offer with no one. I'm going to read this from Krista Smith, who was a very seasoned Vanity Fair editor. I love editor. you, Krista Smith. I'm not actually maligning you, you. I'm going to trust Krista that when she says Marvel demanded that she discuss the offer with no one, that's exactly what it means. So she couldn't like call up Jennifer Lawrence or call up Emma Stone or call up whoever. Okay, fair enough. But she has a team around her, as you point out, of people who help her make that decision. Like, here's the thing. No communication, even among the lowest of the low level, in uh, any type of show business goes direct person to person. Uh, it always goes through intermediaries. So she's getting a call from whomever, her people, saying they've made this offer and here it is on the table and you can't call your famous best friends, I suppose. Right. And listen, all those intermediaries in this case want her to take the fucking job. I mean, yes, yeah, right. Yes. Your agent or your manager who reps you, yes, in theory. Um, hello, agents and managers. I know what you're going to say. You're going to be like, no, we operate in the best interests of oh our Oh my client. God, hold up. Blah, if, blah, blah. If you are an agent or a manager listening to this show, please create a throwaway email and disguise your identity and write to us. We want to know yeah. all the things and you can disguise everything and everyone, but like, yeah, call us. And we know some of you. Um, so, yes. So, of course, what they're supposed to say is, we act on the best interests of our client, and it's not money motivated. Sure. Okay. Thank you very much for coming. But also, the money, you want it. It's obviously a franchise. It would mean, like, look at fucking uh, Robert Downey Jr. Look at, like, how much money Chris Evans has made, right? right. Well, let's get real about this, though. So, An agent or a manager, it's, you know, it's, it's a gamble, right? It's always a gamble. Something that is a franchise is money in the hand. And the tiny little indie movie that might become a winter's bone that takes your, like, third, fourth tier talent up to an Oscar nomination and turns them into Jennifer Lawrence is a great gamble, often in retrospect. But lots of the gambles don't pay off, and some of them do. I think it may have been a gamble 10 years ago, but I think at this point, we're in 2017, Marvel has established that when it makes a movie, it's a movie. Like, No, no, I'm not saying Marvel's a gamble. I'm saying the opposite. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Anything that you take a risk on, oh, it's risky. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. It always looks great in rest respect, but lots of risks don't pay off. And as you say, a franchise, mm -hmm. assuming there's another movie, blah, blah, yeah. blah, that's going to do well for you. Right. And they'll say to her or, 
you know, certain agents would say, hey, you do this and you can do more Winter's Bones and rooms and whatnot because… And that's not wrong. No, it's not. Um, it buys you the freedom. So but anyway, I- the point is the circle of people to talk to, she can talk to those people fine, but if it were me, I'd want to talk to somebody who's not going to make money from it either. But why would you listen to that? This is where we had a conversation uh, before we started the podcast today. Uh, and I said, tell me about that. And you said, no, not until later. I said, why? And you said, because that's why. Because do any, you're going to say, well, why? And why would they do that? And who would say that? And I do always say that. Who would listen to somebody who says you can't discuss it with anybody? Like, yes, of course, they signed you to some fancy NDA that means you owe them 10 times the budget of, you know, the movie itself. So I guess so. But I just think that's really, really interesting. You win an Oscar, you're 26 years old at the time or whatnot, and they're looking for Captain Marvel, obviously one of the most important superheroes in their whole universe, and they decide it's going to be you. But they can still say to you, hey, uh, you're not allowed to tell anybody. Or what? Like, or what? Like I said, <laughs> or the NDA, or you owe a lot of money, right? Like, or they'll, if they find out, I suppose. Like, that's always the no, thing with so those. so is it going to be like, or we're going to give this to, I don't know, who? Who? Or it's going to be, uh, who would it be? Oh, God. Shailene. They- or, or if you don't say yes, and if you violate our secret pinky swear, uh, Shailene's going to get it instead. Okay. Um, but Sure. Look, I am the queen of wanting to break rules that I don't necessarily break, but feeling like they're bullshit anyway. Uh, you're the one who won't even jaywalk. But <laughs> I don't want to die. I feel really strongly that jaywalking is important. But I have bad news for you. You're sitting here and talking to me and getting all excited about like Marvel casting strategy. You're not excited about Brie Larson. No. You're right. That was the most exciting part of the article. I was like, what the fuck? They didn't want her to talk to anybody? And then, so it's about more, it's about more how Marvel works and yes. not how Brie works. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're, you know, she either said yes or no. And if she had told them to go fuck themselves, that might've been an interesting part of the article, but she didn't. So it's not. No. I will still see the glass castle. Sometimes I get out of things by posing a question, but I don't need to pose the question. I'm going to go see it. I don't know what I'm going to go see. I know that I was more attracted to everything Naomi Watts was doing in her four seconds of screen time and all the Woody Harrelson voiceover than anything to do with the beautiful hairstyles of Brie Larson slash Jeanette Walls. You're right. And ordinarily, a story like The Glass Castle would be something I'd be super down with, right? Oh, it's my catnip. Yeah. Exactly. But I will tell you right now, I'm more excited about the Baywatch movie. Like, I cannot wait to see the Baywatch movie. I am speechless right now of all the transitions we've ever made. Yeah. And this isn't even a transition. Not even a transition. I will tell you right now, because that's how deeply shruggy I am about the Glass Castle movie. I, you know what? I will fight you on that one. I think the Glass Castle as a story has a lot of potential. I don't know what they're going to do with the movie. I saw, a, you know, the cinematography looks nice. Obviously, the hair person's going to win an Oscar. Look, if you're on the fence, if this is the first you're hearing about everything, read the book. See what you think about that. And then 
let us know if you're more or less interested in seeing the movie. The Rock is the new David Hasselhoff. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if there was ever a roundabout way to make our point, uh, I think you've closed out story number one. Okay, so Jimmy Fallon. I mean, you say that like that's a headline, like that's a thing. Those guys don't usually get headlines in conversations like this, right? The late night wars are their own thing, blah, 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 David Letterman. But we don't usually talk about, actually, I take it back. Jay Leno and Conan was good gossip for a while there. Yeah. But we don't usually talk about those guys in context like this. No. And especially not um, in articles like this. I mean, this, uh, this is about Jimmy Fallon's interview with the New York Times this week. Uh, in which he addresses for the first time at length, or the most at length, the whole Trump hair tussle incident, right? Yeah. If you're living under a rock, there is a significant faction of people who blame Jimmy Fallon. Like, I don't know if anybody calls him the deciding factor, but they blame Jimmy Fallon normalizing Trump, ruffling his hair. Ruffling his hair was only the, like, visual demonstration of generally treating him like he was an adorable curiosity. That's right. Instead of a fucking terrifying xenophobe. I mean, listen, does that mean that uh, Trump won the election because he went on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy was cutesy-cutesy with him? I don't think anyone can, like, take it that far. No, but Jimmy Fallon normalized him is the argument. Uh, you know, he wasn't the the only one. Uh, no. Billy Bush may have played a part. Uh, mm-hmm. but Jimmy Fallon's, uh, kind of goofy, giggly, warm, cuddly attitude, which is the way he is on his show all the time, mm-hmm. served to basically, you know, give Donald Trump the, the cotton candy of interview questions. But also it highlighted the difference between him and his peers, because at the time and still, Sam B. is going hard in on it. Stephen Colbert is going hard on it. John Oliver is going in hard. His contemporary is probably James Corden. Um, But the thing with James Corden is that James Corden's show is on later. So his direct time slot competition is actually Colbert. Yeah. And I just, but all of those guys that you talked about, um, they have nothing to do with Jimmy Fallon in terms of being contemporaries. Uh, when I say that, uh, they all came up through The Daily Show or related kind of political comedy outlets, right? Uh, through uh, Comedy Central, through outlets that made a point of making fun of the news. Jimmy Fallon, on the other hand, grew up on Saturday Night Live, which is, which is network, which is playing nice, nice, you know, Lauren Michaels and Saturday Night Live get away with a lot, but they're still on a big three broadcast network and have been for the last 40 odd years. Um, there are many reports and you can dig them up and read them if you're so inclined about how Saturday Night Live does not necessarily teach you to grow teeth where political comedy is concerned. 
I mean, I agree with you and I don't agree with you because one of the people who defended Jimmy Fallon in this New York Times interview and several of his friends, very famous friends, stepped up to basically say, hey, look, this is just not Jimmy's thing. So holding this against him isn't fair because as you're saying, Duanna, it's not his lane. So and yeah, one of exactly. those people is Tina Fey. Right. But Tina Fey was actually doing incisive political comedy on Saturday Night Live. Well... Uh, I thought Sarah Palin was great. Yeah, but Sarah Palin was easy to make fun of. Or Sarah Palin uh, maybe wasn't a legitimate threat. Or Tina Fey making fun of the things about Sarah Palin that had nothing to do with actual politics, i.e. I can see Russia from my house, uh, you know, made her a joke early enough on. You know, I don't know. We've we've gone back and forth on Tina Fey. Tina Fey can be there when you want her to be, and yep. she can be sometimes super silent when it would be helpful to hear her. But Saturday Night Live, as a as a college, as it's sometimes referred to, was not necessarily in the business of incisive, razor sharp political commentary the way John Stewart and all his proteges had to be. Well, like I said, I agree with you and I disagree with you. Where I do agree with you is that where I do think Saturday Night Live is capable of incisive political comedy selectively, what Saturday Night Live also did when you talk about normalization is they had Trump on as a host. Sure did. And so when you consider that environment and where Jimmy comes from, Fallon, then of course when he's seeing at his old playground his old boss bringing on Donald Trump, and having him host, and that being a sort of, oh, if that was okay, then when you consider what he did on his own show, it makes more sense. But which part of it is a disagreement? The disagreement would be like when you said that, you know, um, Saturday Night Live isn't where you look for political comedy. And I'll say, no, I think it can be a a solid ground for political comedy. Selectively. Selectively is the thing. Saturday Night Live is a, a land of opportunity. If they have, and it's gotten a little different in the past few years, but if they have somebody to do an awesome uh, John McCain or a… a, a George jo- W. Bush. Exactly, yeah. or whatever, then they do it. And if they don't, then they don't so much. And that's uh, evidenced by the fact that they have Alec Baldwin playing Trump. Like, Alec Baldwin is great and was already kind of an honorary member of the SNL cast, but… He's not a cast member. They don't have people who are making their bread and butter on political impersonations. Uh, All of this to say, and you know, maybe impersonations sort of take the teeth out of it somehow. Maybe they make it a little more fun and cute. Uh, And that's really the, the accusation that's being leveled, right? Is that Stephen Colbert and Sam B and John Oliver and all those guys get to be more or less themselves while they are spitting the truth about what's going on politically. Well, yes, and your point about how Sam B and John Oliver and Stephen Colbert came from one background and so they already had the muscle, but also when you think about Fallon, um, then what's his answer for Kimmel? Because Kimmel didn't do a hair tussle with Donald Trump. And Kimmel didn't come from the school of Comedy Central. No, but Donald Trump wouldn't dare go near Kimmel because he knows better. Right, but Kimmel is also fun, I, right? Yeah, he's so fun. He, when, you're, when they're saying that 
Fallon, you know, his show is about funny and fun and games and whatnot. Kimmel's also doing the funny and the games and the interviewing people on the street and Guillermo and whatever, but manages also to not tossle Donald Trump's hair. If you want evidence of this, uh, here's a little uh, local color that became less local. Look up the Jimmy Kimmel interview with Rob Ford. Uh, Rob Ford, if you don't know, was a notorious Toronto mayor, a crack-smoking, finger-giving to mothers in their cars with children, uh, pussy-eating, commentating (laughs) mayor of Toronto. May he rest in peace. All of this on video. Oh, yeah. All of this is very (laughs) verifiable. Um, And he went on on Jimmy Kimmel. And Jimmy Kimmel was never not nice to him, but he still managed to make Rob Ford look like Rob Ford. My point. My point. That's our point. That's my point. Jimmy Fallon should not have relied on being a cute younger brother or is this the bigger conversation? Does that mean he's not suited for the job that he's in, for the role that he's in? In the times that we're in, I guess. Sure. I mean, listen, and that's all the background because going back to this New York Times interview, what's happening right now is he's getting beat. So Colbert has been surging and surging dramatically, I think in the last two weeks, and Colbert has been at least matching him in ratings, if not beating him. But the key that happened over the last 10 days is that he beat him in that coveted 18 to 49 demo, which is the advertiser, uh, the advertiser gold demo. And so they're seeing this NBC and the tonight show. And they're like, okay, we need to stop the bleeding now. So what do we do? How do we get Jimmy Fallon out there um, I emphasize Fallon because there are too many Jimmies, like there are too many Chris's. Anyway, so NBC and The Tonight Show are like, uh, it is at this point uh, a free fall, so we need to get Jimmy Fallon back out there, and perhaps it's time for him to do a New York Times piece in which he emotionally, it was quite emotional the way it read, sure. um, he talks quite emotionally about his, I don't know, can we say regret? And his regret about that Donald Trump interview, about how his feelings were hurt, about how he had to stay off Twitter for a while, about how how upsetting it was for him. And then all his friends chimed in, including the Tina Fey and whoever else, saying, leave him alone, you know. Okay, but come on. This is what, but this is what we're discussing. Was it a good move? No, here's why. We've been talking on this show by accident for the last few weeks about how hard comedians work, about the work of going into a bajillion different no-name clubs and working a set and working a set and getting that muscle honed and getting to the point where you can cut to the bone comedy-wise in a few minutes. And that's not just like because it's a talent to have. It's because you usually only have five minutes. Like having your own show is a goddamn rarity. And for Jimmy Fallon... To kind of be like, well, I was just, I had my feelings hurt and I was, I was just overwhelmed. I'm like, aren't you supposed to be in the mix? Aren't you supposed to be in the fray and getting as good as you give, which makes you tougher, which makes you funnier? You know, if we're getting really real about it, nobody becomes funny because they have a happy childhood. Nobody becomes funny because everything in their life goes 
well, right? Like comedy is a defense mechanism. We know this. We love it. Uh, I had a friend who used to say, like, show me a childhood reject uh, and get them an ankle bracelet and I'll come back in 20 years and ask them for their book. So I think that there's something to be said for sort of pain gets comedy and that's the point and that's almost the muscle that you should be generating. So I roll my eyes at Jimmy Fallon who's like, I couldn't go on Twitter. Like at a certain point, don't you develop the callus where you almost like the criticism? I don't know. I can hear him that he didn't see it coming, I suppose, or that this is the person he's supposed to be. But you're right. It doesn't ring well in these times. And listen, I agree with you. I agree with everything that you said about the pains and the calluses. Um, Just say the part again where you said you agree with everything I said. Ha ha. Um, no, it's amazing. Um, but I, I think I agree with you a lot. I think you're the one who can't agree. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> what I will say about the pains and the calluses with respect to Jimmy Fallon is he says in this interview that he's a people pleaser. And I've actually seen that in action. A few weeks ago, I went to Orlando, Florida to interview Jimmy Fallon. There's a new ride, a new, uh, what do they call it? Adventure ride. Ad thrill. Oh. They have a name. They have a certain expression that they use for these kinds of rides. Anyway, so they have a new ride. It's, it's called, called The Tonight Show Ride with Jimmy Fallon or the Race to New York. Race through New York with Jimmy Fallon. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, so um, we were invited to go and interview him. And I found him to be a lovely guy. Uh, there was, I don't know at least a dozen outlets lining up to, to meet him. He had time and personality and charm for each and every person. He was sweet. He um, wanted to make every interview good. They Each interview was extended, which as you know, never happens, right? No, they, that never happens. The publicist is like, you get three minutes, and then literally they time you out at 2.59. Whereas Jimmy gave everyone, I would say, at least eight or nine minutes. And let's just uh, break that down for a second. One of the reasons the publicists need to keep the days on schedule and you get your three minutes is because they're often working with a star who says, I'm walking at four o'clock and they will walk at four o'clock whether the outlets have gotten what they need or not. That's right. So in their own grumpy ass way, they are trying to get you what you need uh, because they know the star is going to punk out. Yeah. So by saying he's giving everybody eight or nine minutes, it means that he's extending his own day yeah. and that, you know, they're not worried about him because he's not worried about him. No. And uh, on the, on someone on this side of the rope, I appreciate that. And again, there was no rope, I just want to say, either in this situation. They didn't like section us off like animals and keep him on the clean side. There was an intimacy to this, this interview that was nice. And so I can't say enough how sweet and lovely it was to be able to do my job and that Jimmy Fallon made it very easy that day. That said, it speaks to the people pleasing. And my question for you is, can you be a people pleaser and an effective satirist slash comedian? No. I, look, if I were... Look, I carry around as much sort of baggage as anybody else, and if I were free of my people-pleasing bone, uh, I would be, I suppose, a more effective political satirist. 
Uh, everybody has some of that. I get it. But you have to be able to piss people off as a, uh, not just a comedian, although yes, as a comedian, but as I would say a political commentator as well. Both of those roles require the ability to not be liked, uh, the ability to sort of make some enemies. You know, I've often felt and thought that if people aren't mad at you, uh, then you're not doing enough, that you're not doing something right, which is easier said than done. Please don't send me hate mail. I love you. Um, and you know, I brushed by the late night wars earlier, uh, which referred to the sort of decades long battle between Jay Leno and David Letterman. But this is the way that they were described, uh, at least in the press. Uh, Jay Leno is a personable, warm, cheerful, time for everybody, happy, friendly, nice kind of guy. And David Letterman was prickly and sometimes difficult and fucking much funnier, depending on who you ask. Uh, it also depends on who you ask behind the scenes because uh, I've heard some things about David Letterman that, uh, you know, he's a very, very nice guy and works very hard to hide that fact. Uh, so it's not to say you have to be a dick, but yes, you have to be willing to be perceived as not everybody's best friend. Well, what's interesting in that example is that throughout their rivalry, most of the time, Leno beat Letterman in ratings. Uh-huh. So that was what was happening in the now version of that situation, which is Colbert and Fallon, Right. Fallon was, for a long time, at least from the beginning of Colbert starting in that seat, up until around last November, um, Fallon was handily beating Colbert. And in fact, we've talked about this, right? We talked about the changes that Colbert made at his show to be able to sort of get a second wind. Well, he stopped, in a way, his own kind of people-pleasing, right? He says, too, that he stopped trying to take on everything, Mm -hmm. that he allowed himself to delegate and focus on and focus on what he does best and focused he allowed himself to be angry. And when you're angry, you're not always going to please people. Right, but it's really interesting that holding yourself back from that to be the nice guy might have been the way that he operated before. Right. So it clearly has worked for Colbert and it's a confluence of events, right? I mean, nobody could have predicted how this administration would run itself or not run itself. Um, Nobody could have predicted the day after day snafus and scandals and like, listen. No, nothing is going to date this podcast more than you talking (laughs) about the latest scandal, but because by the time we're finished taping it, there will be another one. That's right. So no one could have predicted all of that. And it's certainly in that kind of environment, that kind of formula has uh, benefited Colbert. But we are seeing like that little switch where Leno ruled with that style for not just a year, but years upon years upon years, and Letterman didn't. And we should say those were crucial years in which uh, Jimmy Fallon, who is our age, more or less, uh, would have been growing up and learning. And, you know, if you want to be like the number one guy, then that's who you would learn to imitate. Yeah. So now Fallon is falling behind and they're doing damage control. So they send him out to the New York Times. He does this interview. um, uh, Poor me, Twitter. I'm a people pleaser. Your view on it is it's not effective. I, no, I don't think so. That's critical to me because when you choose to do the interview in the New York Times, 
not People magazine, not Hello magazine or whatever magazine, but the New York Times, I would say that if you're not moved, then was it even the right target to go to you as the reader, to go to the people who would, who would read the New York Times? Because clearly they're saying, hey, Colbert viewers, right? New York Times, Colbert viewers, politically um, aware, informed people who read the New York Times, can you come over to me or come back to me? And it didn't work. The people who like Fallon as he is, I'm not sure they're reading the New York Times and reading his interview in the New York Times. Well, they does that make worried. sense? Yeah, it does. I know what you're implying, but like even if no matter how, you know, educated or liberally leaning or, or New York Times subscribing, if you didn't have a problem with what Fallon did, you're not reading that interview. And my bigger issue here is that, uh, and I would say this of anybody, uh, there's an unpopular opinion ahead, but I think that I'm a people pleaser is the worst non-excuse that has ever been created. Here's why. Everybody has things about them that are, you know, things that aren't great, things you need to work on, things that you don't love in yourself. But that's your responsibility. That's not your excuse to say, oh, I did a bad thing, but I'm a people pleaser, so I just wanted to make everybody happy. Right. That's, tell your therapist. That is not an excuse in the press that changes why what you did things. If he had said, you know, what I realized is that my people-pleasing tendencies were getting in the way of my television domination, then I could kind of get behind it, I suppose. But it's that sort of shrug and looking for mommy to hug him that makes me a little bit crazy. That's your problem that you're a people pleaser, but it's not what I want to see on my TV. No, it's a really good point because what you're saying is, to put it in everyday terms that we would all be confronted with, you can say that you're a people pleaser at the beginning of a job interview. It's a standard answer, right? What is your greatest flaw? Or what do you need to work on? I'm a people pleaser. I need to say, um, I, whatever, you know, that stock answer that we all have to answer the question of, Hey, where, and it happens. I'm sorry. Do you use, I'm a people pleaser instead of I'm a perfectionist. Is that your, uh, it's the same. It's essentially the, it's same, the same thing, right? Yeah, there's yes. So you can say it at the beginning of a job when you're interviewing for the job, you don't say it when you have the job and you fucked up. That's right. You, and you're called into the office or you have to answer to your board of directors or your investors. You can't say, hey, we just lost this deal or we screwed up this account. The answer, uh, I'm a people pleaser, is not going to cut it in that situation. And no. this is what Fallon has done. That's right. It's an excuse instead of a here's how I fucked up and why. That's right. And so to go back to work, this is work bungled on so many levels. On the publicity side, I don't know why they decided that the New York Times would be the right place to make these revelations. To well, where do you think it would have been better? Like, look, I'm not, I, I don't disagree, but I don't think it's so different from had it been in, I don't know, the Washington Post, the LA Times. Well, the first mistake was not addressing it at the beginning, months and months ago, which he acknowledges, which he was like, I didn't speak to it. And this is basically the first time he's talking about it. Yeah, because they hoped and prayed it would blow over. That's right. And it didn't. And again all this unpredictable shit happened and Colbert and everybody else struck the right tone for the viewers. That's what the viewers are looking for, clearly, right? So nobody could have predicted this. But hindsight, sure, 2020. But to me, even now, if you're going to address it, 
You don't do it in a spoken word, written piece, (laughs) (laughs) right? Let me hear you then. Let me at least hear the tone of your voice. Was there a tremor when he talked about how Twitter was mean to him? I really fucking hope there was not. (laughs) Because when you said that and said, let me hear you, I immediately pictured my go-to, which is always picturing like a a Vaseline-lit Barbara Walters interview. And if on top of the Vaseline there was a tear, I would throw my television out the window. Well, why would you have to go to Barbara Walters when every night at 11.30 you already have a direct line to your audience? Because, and this is where we're getting to the the real deal here, because I don't know the demos of exactly who watches late night TV, but as we talked about earlier, there are people who aren't mad that that he did that. There are people who probably think that was okay. And you can't use your big giant platform because you can't alienate all your viewers who think that patting Trump on the head was a nice thing to do and a thing they wish they had done too. So, but again, it goes back to, then you go to the New York Times and those people are going to need more than a, I'm a people pleaser. So you've accomplished nothing. And I feel like maybe you've entrenched the people more who didn't like what you did, who thought it was weak. You've entrenched them even more into that position. I th- I worry for him. If I'm him and his team, this may have um, done the opposite of what they were intending. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it was already a bit of a bland program. It was already not can't miss like some of the others. Uh, I feel remiss that in this conversation we haven't mentioned Trevor Noah, um, who's arguably killing it the hardest, uh, but getting the least notice sometimes. It's funny you say that because Trevor Noah this week just scored the highest ratings of ever, of all time during his tenure as the host of The Daily Show. The point being, with Sam B and Trevor Noah and John Oliver and Stephen Colbert, we don't need Jimmy Fallon. We don't need somebody who's like a throwback Leno-era people-pleaser. Well, no, he's getting eaten alive on all sides. He's getting eaten alive on that side. And on the other side, the light, funny, Corden's doing it way better. Sure, Corden. Yeah, but Corden's not getting his hands anywhere near dirty, which is fine. So where's he going to live now? Well, that's it. As you say, uh, if his team mismanaged this, I'd be looking at what kind of, what's he going to host in prime time? What kind of specials is he doing? Because I don't know how long this is going to live. Well, I think that, Jimmy Fallon's status internally with NBC is probably just fine in the sense of, listen, they just spent how many fucking billions of dollars building that ride. So yeah, but that ride (laughs) almost illustrates our point. It doesn't really matter where Jimmy Fallon is. He can be an NBC property for all his days, for all we care, but it doesn't need to be late night because late night is becoming a a swimming pool for the big kids. Uh, you know, he can host a, a, a 60 Minutes if he wants to. Uh, they can put him into just about any position. Uh, the other thing is Jimmy Fallon has been on Saturday Night Live since, you know, before he grew chest hair. He's pretty used to being on top. So I don't think there's going to be a situation where being fourth or fifth in the pile, if that should happen, becomes his new state of being. I think they'll, we'll see some sort of change before then. That's interesting to me. Like, to me, that's interesting in how will Jimmy Fallon adapt? Like, you talked about muscles and calluses. So, presumably, this is his first callus. 
This is his first scar. So if you're Jimmy Fallon, where do you go from that? You don't sound very hopeful. But I also don't care. Like, I'm going to put it on the table. Um, I am not invested in Jimmy Fallon's success. Maybe if I'd met him, I would be more. uh, But I'm not – I don't hold a lot of faith in the network system. Hello, networks. Hire me. I love you. Uh, So I'm not – waiting for him. I think there is something to be said for being a scrappy outsider who doesn't have all the advantages. You are so lucky I'm not making a Hamilton reference right now. But I do think that there's something to be said for somebody who kind of has to earn an audience and inheriting it is not developing the muscles in Jimmy Fallon that are going to be able to make him play with the big kids. It is, though, a really great example of how this business can go up and down that quickly. How it can just, I mean, this has been, the Fallon-Colbert turn has been super rapid to the point where, I mean, I was just reading about the CBS upfronts and last year uh, when they were doing the upfronts, Colbert's ratings were so shit that he was barely a mention. This year, he practically hosted the CBS upfront. Because he wasn't afraid. Because after going through all the things and figuring out how to make the show better, you have to make the show relevant. You have to make the show matter in order to get the ratings. Well, and you have to piss people off. Well, and here and here's the thing: when we talk about exactly the same example, Colbert just pissed a lot of people off. I know. So that joke, of course, with Putin and whatever uh, Donald Trump, and it was like a suggestive cock, cock holster. Was that the? Uh, it was the joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, and there was accusations of homophobia. And he went on the next day, the next day, and in a way said maybe a poor choice of words, but also stood his ground. Yeah. And then uh, in and around there was investigated by the FCC, right? They threatened. Yeah. But as soon as, okay, but yes, but here's what the headline says, Colbert and FCC in the same headline. Guess what that means for the casual viewer? They're watching that night. If you're going to go ahead and play in the in the league, go ahead and piss people off because what you want is to have people watching to see what you're going to do next. And none of us have been worried about what Jimmy Fallon might do next for as long as we've known his name. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so, you know, apparently everything does come back to Jimmy Fallon uh, because our next topic, uh, a person we wouldn't usually talk about, or at least who's not usually headline news, uh, Busy Phillips is best known to most of us as Michelle Williams's plus one at every award show ever, right? But she's an actress in her own right. Uh, she was Kim Kelly on Freaks and Geeks back in the day and then on Dawson's Creek where she met Michelle. And most recently, she was taping the pilot for the Sackett Sisters with Casey Wilson, uh, which was, of course, a Tina Fey pilot. So this is one of those pilots that we started hearing about back in the day. Oh, Tina has a new pilot. Oh, good cast. Casey Wilson from 
uh, Happy Endings and then more recently Marry Me. Uh, and you kind of go, yes, I want to see those two play sisters. That'll be fun. And then, uh, first of all, we learned that the show was not being picked up. Second of all, most of us learned it in an unusual way, which is to say from Busy Phillips's Instagram, or in my case, from Maria from Laney Gossip writing about Busy Phillips's Instagram. So, uh, first of all, now there's a full-on campaign uh, from Busy Phillips and or Casey Wilson to get people to campaign uh, to, to NBC to pick up the show. Uh, and look, it's a good cast. It's Casey Wilson, it's Busy Phillips, it's Bradley Whitford. But that's not really what we're talking about. We wanted to talk about this because, uh, well, because this is unusual. The way that she's sort of treating her social media is and has been unusual. Yes? Yes. I Like the Instagram video that you're talking about was uh, Busy Phillips was crying. And she was sharing with her followers the heartbreak and the disappointment, not just of losing this pilot, but it was almost like a buildup over the years, right? How many pilots have you been involved with over the years? And when they don't get picked up, what she was saying is it never gets easier. It's always so fucking shitty to be no after no after no. And the thing is, I just want to be so clear. Uh, we talked about this last week, but when pilots are sort of winnowed off at every stage, like after the script and after the pilots are, are casting or whatever, or before they're picked up, they're all good. Like they all, nobody, I think rarely anyway, is somebody on something where they're like, this is shit. Like just because of the process that it goes through to get there, they're all pretty good or they're all bad in the same way. So I don't think that you know you're not going to get a pickup because your show's not good. I think you probably think there's a great chance. And that's a show full of winners, uh, a show full of really comedic people. And so the fact that it doesn't get picked up because it's not quite there, it doesn't have the tune that they want to pair with something else at NBC, can and does feel really arbitrary. Yes. It, arbitrary considering like, you know, we every season, all of us, audience members, um, we're now used to shows being canceled after two episodes, three episodes, one episode. When you take that into consideration and what you just talked about, but the arbitrariness of it, then you start to wonder, like, if you're in it, if you're in the process and you're like, fuck, mine didn't make it past pilot. And then this one was dumped after one, two, maybe three episodes. It starts to become like, when you're outside and you're not an actor, you're like, shit, how do you do it? And most of them don't talk about it. When they do, it's after the fact. They don't give you the insight during. No, partly because there's not much to talk about. If you don't get a pilot in pilot season, what can you do but sit around and wait for a guest starring role? If you get cast in a pilot that doesn't get picked up, eh, what are you going to say? Maybe you'll get recast in a role and probably you won't. If, you know, if your pilot or your show that's really great gets canceled after one or two or five episodes or a heartbreaking, amazing season, please watch Pitch somewhere, find it. What can you say? There's nothing to say because A, you got to play in the game. You got to be in the big leagues. Uh, so how do you have a conversation about it except like it sucks? 
But here's what Busy Phillips is doing. She's saying, this sucks and this is what happens. This is the life. But it's interesting too because it was consistent with what she was showing her followers over the last month or so. Uh, Prior to that, Busy had posted something about her involvement with Michael's. Um, The what? Could you call it an arts and crafts store? I guess so, yeah. Um, And she was also very candid about that too. She was like, "Um, I kind of make more money on social media now than I do on my acting. Well, this is probably the perfect confluence of, of us. Uh, you know, I don't know how much a busy Phillips makes for a pilot uh, for a show that doesn't get picked up. Probably it has to do with scale, which is uh, union minimums. It's probably not actually scale, but uh, scale is a union minimum for how much an actor can be paid for a given role. And then if you're a bigger deal than that, then you kind of negotiate up. Uh, so I'd have to look up what it is. But say she gets paid, oh, I don't know, between 10 and 15 grand to shoot that pilot. Um, say that's her TV work for the year. Like that scale, you mean? Yeah, please don't quote me. I will actually, uh, for fun, I will look up what union scale is for a pilot and we'll we'll put it up in the post But with episode. all due respect to Busy Phillips, it's not going to be Carrie Washington rates. No, but even Carrie Washington rates are Carrie Washington rates after seven seasons of Scandal, That's right. right? You get a bump every year. Right. For a pilot, for somebody who is not a, you know, an A-plus list name, and to be fair to everybody involved, Carrie Washington was not an A-plus list name before sure. Scandal. But now she has… And also, yeah. while I'm up, uh, an hour would pay more than a half hour, proportionately more. That's just how it works. And network would pay more than cable, although things are changing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. But say, for the sake of argument… That, that scale seems right. Sure. Or in and around there. Yeah. Right? But my point being, regardless, even if it's double scale, even if it's, you know, even if she makes 30 grand uh, for what amounts to 15, 16 days of work, that might be her only TV work for the year. hmm And so… She, again, very candidly was like, yeah, so I'm an actor, but I'm not making money acting right now. So Michaels is giving me some money and I, you know, like to do the social media thing when it's aligned with activities that I actually do. So it's more organic. But here, followers, that's about as real as it gets. And then two weeks later, her followers then get the match up with, oh, yeah, she really does have to do the Michaels because her pilot got not picked up. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that brands really like that kind of realism, right? They really like that somebody who has a huge social media reach can talk to their followers and be real about what they're doing, or this is authentic for me, or blah, blah, blah. True? True. I, you know, my initial reaction to that statement is, what is real? I mean, there are, right, there are different scales of real now, Um, but... Busy's brand of real is is that where you're seeing her crying when you're seeing her tell you I need money. Right. And that was the case. Let's be real here. I do I don't follow her on I'm just learning Instagram everybody. Uh but that was her brand before these last few posts. Like she's been there. So I guess the question is is this like a third category? Like one of the things I like about this conversation is that nobody is castigating her for this. Nobody is shaming her 
for either showing the emotion about the canceled pilot or about like crying into her big pile of money. Like I just tossed off those numbers like they were nothing. And I recognize that those numbers are a lot of money for a short period of time work, you know, but again, they might be her only TV money for the year. But it's commensurate with a lifestyle too. And so yes and no, like that lifestyle can come and go, right? Like that's the other thing. So, which is to say that if you're not working, even if you feel pressure to maintain the lifestyle of your Oscar winning and nominated friend, Michelle Williams, you might not be able to. All this to say, is this fine? Is this like another side of Busy Phillips? Is it even an advantage to her? Is it making her more real and more marketable? I wonder, I mean, you're going to have to tell me, I, from a brand perspective, I think it is making her more marketable for people who want to continue to engage her on social media, but within the business, the casting directors, the producers who are watching this happen and they're seeing Busy Phillips openly letting people know, I am devastated. This didn't happen. And it's kind of building a little momentum. There's a hashtag now where, um, from this video, all of Busy follow all of Busy's followers are like, oh my God, we got to get this going. We got to save this show. Hashtag must see Sackett. There you go. So now I think a couple of days ago, she gave an interview to Entertainment Weekly and I guess a campaign is happening. Yeah. So uh, from nothing, this has spurred on something? As somebody said, you know, uh, every single one of Busy Phillips and Casey Wilson's combined 645 thousand Instagram subscribers will watch it. Uh, that's not nothing. Uh, in well, it depends. It depends on uh, on what uh, what venue we're talking but about. But who said that? Who said that all of their combined subscribers would watch the show? Uh, a follower. A okay. follower who's using the hashtag. Okay. That's been aggregated by Entertainment Weekly, who's telling us the story. Because also at the same time, not to defend networks and asshole producers who we very rarely defend, um, in their defense, I'm going to look at that comment. I'm going to be like, okay, that's a nice thing to hear, but it's actually not true. Well, it is and it isn't. Look, not all those followers are watching that show. No, but… Not even a majority. Oh, can I just get a sentence out? (laughs) Like… Yeah, but there are all kinds of people who don't know about the show who will watch it anyway. This is what you're hoping for. People who watch the show because it's good, not because they already know who the followers are, because they would blindly follow who the stars are regardless of what's going on, right? Like, as I said at the beginning, oh, it's a Tina Fey show. We haven't mentioned Tina Fey in 10 minutes, but there are people who will watch it just because that's the case. Um, But if the show is great... You also pick up people who don't know who any of these people are, and then they become household names, and then they get far more than double scale, and, you know, we begin a different conversation. I just don't know if that's a compelling argument. What? One Instagram follower being like, all of the combined 640,000. But they don't know that. Who are you mad at? Some Instagram (laughs) follower? No, I'm just like, I'm not mad at that, but I just, to me, that's like, if I'm making the decision, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not basing it on that. Okay. No, fair enough. But I mean, I guess, you know, people have, I wonder if these campaigns had more heft almost in the days before social media. You know, there were times when characters wanted to save uh, given given relationships or they shipped certain things and they'd like snail mail the offices with like big piles of marshmallows or 
snare. I don't know why it always had to do with candy, uh, but there were all these save campaigns that used to feel like they were, had a lot of impact. And you're right that so many Instagram posts are not necessarily going to have the same impact. They're not necessarily going to make you look up the same way as like a comic avalanche of Maltesers coming your way because you don't want to be teased about, I don't know, Spike and Buffy anymore. No. And to me, where this is going to be interesting and where I'm most interested in is not, frankly, sorry, whether or not the Sackett sisters is going to get picked up, but where this takes Busy Phillips. Because this social media savvy, for lack of a better way of describing it, and the way that she's actually become so endearing um, and has appealed to people is making me see for Busy Phillips so many different avenues. Like, what would you do for her? Well, I'm like, okay, Busy Phillips, I'd be really interested in developing opportunities for Busy Phillips to be, I don't know, on the talk. Right. Or the, what, is it the talk, the view, and the, the chew? Chew? Yeah, one of those, right? Right. I'm like, why isn't someone finding something like that for Busy Phillips? Maybe she doesn't want that. I know that she, no, she she did the Kelly Ripa for a few days. Okay, but a few days is not making a full left turn from your acting career into a, a talk show career. See, this is what I would think about Busy Phillips. Like, to me, I, I think Busy Phillips would be smart enough to be like, hey, if I can make my inroads there, let me do that for a while and get so familiar with hundreds and millions of more people, that then maybe I can go back into the acting. It's so funny because, first of all, we're both talking about it as though it's a step to the left anyway, which, by the way, it is. Um, But I think of it the totally opposite way. I think of, I keep thinking, like, why is Busy Phillips trying to aim at network? Like, Go indie. Like, I want to see where's Busy Phillips's high maintenance. Where's her web series? Where is the... And look, she's not... She was on Cougar Town for many years. It's not like she hasn't worked in 20 years. Uh, but I would like to see her go more indie, more cable, more niche outlet than networky. I think that's a better use of the social media persona. Yeah, I'm going network for her. I... That's where I think that we disagree. I'd like to see her. I mean, like, that would have been great if instead of Ryan Seacrest, it was Kelly and Busy. I mean, that's imagining a whole new giant property. But I don't think that, I don't get the impression that's what she wants, you know? I think she could have that if she wanted that. I mean, if she's taking Michael's deals on Instagram, I'm not sure she's going to put the phone down when Kelly calls. Okay, but that doesn't, a Michael's deal doesn't preclude you doing a cool new pilot. Or a movie or something. Let me put it to you this way. Michelle Williams can't be best friends with the Live with Busy and Kelly co-host. Well, that is a different conversation because then it's like, fuck you, Michelle Williams. The other girl's got to eat too. Yeah, no, I'm no like, arguments there. You go have your Louis Vuitton deals and acting in your like auteur films, but this is your best friend and this is what she needs to do. Look, I don't disagree with you, but I don't think we're talking about Busy Phillips starving. And in fact, a, a, an amusing part to the story is that after she talked about the Michaels deal and saying she makes more from that than from acting, um, fans started sending her a dollar on Venmo, which I guess is uh, the yeah. <laughs> e-banking yes. things that she wound up having to like accept them and 
make a donation, give right? Give it to a charity. Yeah, which is kind of funny. Um, but I don't think we're talking about her not being able to feed herself. This is not the Brie Larson conversation. I think this is about trying to craft a career and, you know, butting your head against the wall. And the example I always think about in this situation, and stay with me here, is, is John Hamm. There was this guy who's kind of an actor, but he hasn't really had anything happen. And he like plays an extra in his girlfriend's films, which themselves don't do big bucks. And he like pays the bills doing a day on Gilmore Girls here or there, which by the way, I don't think you ever commented on. Uh, he kind of played a dick on Gilmore Girls for one yeah, day. Yeah, he was gross. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure he was a couple other places. And if you are John Hamm or somebody who knows John Hamm, you got to be like, buddy, you're 38, you're 39, you're doing like one day on Gilmore Girls, maybe let it go. And then all of a sudden, you're not doing just one day on Gilmore Girls anymore. Like there's this horrible, magical thing about Hollywood, which is that the fates can change. You talked about uh, Colbert and Fallon sort of flipping the script and flipping who's on top. And you can not only go from hot to not, but you can go from nobody takes your calls to being a really, really big deal. And that carrot on a stick is what keeps people going. And I think that's what keeps Busy Phillips in the, in the game. So here's a headline that jumped out at me. Um, and it really, I don't know, you tell me if it fits into uh, do we need to care about. <laughs> which is our <laughs> tends to be the yeah the last our slot. regular last slot on this podcast. Robin Wright. So Robin Wright is in Cannes, um, or she was in Cannes for the first few days, um, and she was uh, doing a magazine interview too. A magazine interview came out, and she talked about House of Cards, and she said that when she signed on, she thought she was getting equal pay with Kevin Spacey. Yes. Okay. And then it subsequently, she subsequently found out that she was not, in fact, getting equal pay. So was there any jargon used? What magazine was it? The Edit. Okay. So uh, she, this is the exact quote. I was told that I was getting equal pay and I believed them. And I found out recently that it's not true. How many seasons are we in? Five? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, so then she's asked, were you nervous about approaching the studio? And she said, not for a second. It was just fair on principle. So after five seasons, she finds out that she and Kevin Spacey are not being paid equally. Um, and then I guess she asked and now she is. But do you get to retroactive that or whatever you backdate? Is that the rule? Is that the word? I mean, I have no idea. One of the things that's interesting is sometimes uh, in, in TV and film deals, not always, uh, you'll be told that such and such is a favored nations deal. Uh, and that means that nobody's getting any more. Uh, it's usually for kind of short things uh, or one-offs or, you know, go in for one day and do blah, blah, blah. It's favored nations. Everybody's getting X amount. Uh, so it's possible maybe that she was told something like that for what, a, a pilot or a, a, a script read or something Uh and that maybe she assumed that that favored nation situation would continue in the salary that was offered subsequently. Right. I don't know. That's, that's odd to me. I mean, look, she went on to say things like, um, 
There are very few films or TV shows where the male, the patriarch, and the matriarch are equal, and they are in House of Cards. And, I mean, it's true. Frank and Claire are a partnership. Yeah, they're not the only ones, but yes, agreed. Um, I just think it's really, like, what do you do? Look, she did what she had to do when she thought it was one thing, and when she found out it was, the moment she found out that it was another, she went and made it equal. Um but at the same time, it's still, for me, it would bite my ass because I would say to myself, well, fuck, like, it's a, five years later and now, of course, like, I've already had to put in the time to show you that it's equal. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but no. That is to say, um, it's always that way. Uh, uh, well, how do I put this? You know, people will pay what they can get away with paying. And this is absolutely often about gender. It's often absolutely about uh, the male and the female and, the, and the, the male lead getting paid more, but not always. For instance, if we were talking about the Sackett sisters, uh, I'm not going to say that would have been an equal pay. And I don't even know who I think would have had more, but there's no guarantee that it's only down gender lines. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Your deal is your deal alone. And uh, a very wise friend of mine named Emily once said, you know, you have to fight really hard at the beginning for all the things that you want because that's what keeps you going. You can't fight again in the middle of the season when it's three in the morning and you have all the work to do. And, you know, there's nothing else you can do at that point. You have to sort of fight for yourself up front. So I guess this is partly a conversation about don't assume that you're being well taken care of. In terms of the equality, in terms of you saying like, well, I had to prove that I was worth equal money, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, that sucks. And yet, well, okay, no, no, I'm not going to, no, I'm actually really mad at myself. Uh, That sucks. But let's, I'm going to go back here and say that five years ago, pre-House of Cards, Kevin Spacey is a bigger draw than Robin Wright. He is a bigger draw. She is a capable actress, a worthy co-star. But if I know nothing about the show or how it is or what it's going to be, or the British show on which it was based, then yeah, no, to me, Kevin Spacey gets more. Unless she negotiates for more, and that's fine. She comes to the table. But I don't think there's anything untoward about having her be paid less. If you came to me and said, you know, Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton, and they sort of have these uh, relatively similar profiles on this little show called Friday Night Lights. That's a different conversation. But Kevin Spacey had a bigger profile than Robin Wright at that time. What do you make of her then saying she went to them and said, you better pay me or I'm going to go public? Well, she did go public. So, (laughs) I mean, that is kind of a, it's kind of a weird roundabout threat. Is there a word for that? When you, like, threaten something to get what you want, but then you do the threat anyway? I don't know. Is there? I don't know. Like, blackmail. Or, like, it's, like, double (laughs) indemnity or something. Yeah, like. I'm also thinking, of course, of Emmy Rossum, who we talked about on this show. Just thinking about that, too. Um, You know, who, after eight seasons, held up production of shameless in order to be paid equally with William H. Macy. And while I supported it then and support it now, think it was the right move, glad it happened, 
In season one, yeah, he's a bigger draw than her. She was like a 19-year-old actress. She was not yet holding down the show with him in the way that she is now. So I'm hard-pressed to be mad at that from a gendered point of view. I can think it's bullshit that, you know, you don't cast stars of equal measure together or that certain would-be film stars kind of come back to roost in TV and ha, 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 what does that mean about their careers? But the biggest star gets the biggest money. That, I think, is something we we all have discussed and know. Yes? Yes. How do you, how do you think she found out? Who? Robin Wright. Like, That's how does question. that work? That's right? a good question. So it's been she she thinks they're getting paid the same and she's telling this story and she i guess not so long ago finds out they're not so how does she find out how does emmy rossum find out you know i don't know if it was a secret for emmy rossum but for for robin wright um it's a good question Often when you get into the later years of shows, people's deals, which for the most part are renegotiated every year, they start to include things that are non-monetary. You know, for film people, they often want like points on the back end, which means like pieces of the profit. Or uh, often in TV, at a certain point, the actors start wanting to direct uh, or wanting other perks like that. Uh, there There are fees attached to directing, so of course they would get the you know, additional feats, nothing compared to their te- to their acting money, but it's there. Uh, so I don't know, maybe somebody said, oh, I got pushed into the next tax bracket or said something about how, you know, I, I'm sure that everybody thinking everyone was on the same page made some casual comment about uh, the, yeah, the, the, you know, having to hire a separate accountant to hire a separate piece of money and, and the locks kind of tumble for her. Uh, I don't think anybody walks around ever saying, like, look how much I get paid an episode. Or maybe somebody talked to her about a an episodic budget, for example. And she thinks, well, how can there be that much money? One thing I should say is that uh, the terms above the line and below the line come up a lot. Above the line money is uh, almost negotiable money. It's not negotiable, but it's the money that goes to the key cast and the writer and the director and the people who make the production without whom uh, kind of the creative star power. The below the line money is the money for the crew, uh, which is much more regimented by unions and precedent and various sort of professional associations, which is to say that if, I don't know, if grips get X amount a day, then all the grips at a certain level get that money and it's not really up for debate. So, you know, it could be that somebody said to her, the above the line budget on this show is X dollars. Mm -hmm. And she takes out the director's and writer's fees and her own and goes, wait a minute, there should be less left than there is, you know? The reason I ask is because, of course, the big example that comes to mind still when we talk about the gender pay gap in Hollywood is the Sony hack and then the Jennifer Lawrence, Amy Adams pay uh, difference with what Bradley Cooper and Jeremy Renner um, for what American Hustle, right? And so that only got exposed because because of that hack, which right. then resulted in Jennifer Lawrence's essay for Lenny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that to me is much more egregious because 
Those guys are like, I mean, come on. You're going to try and tell me Jennifer Lawrence is a less important oh, star yeah. than Jeremy Renner? <laughs> like, seriously? Yeah. Uh, and because TV being what it is, if you're lucky enough to get a second season, uh, there's often room for negotiation at each step. Uh, so it, it becomes different balls of wax. The deal that you make on a film is the deal that you make. Uh, and it sort of projects you to the next one. And TV is slightly different in that way. It actually is really interesting from a real world perspective too, because there have been a lot of articles recently, the last couple of years, as all industries deal with gender pay gaps in terms of opening up salaries in workplaces. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who are arguing on behalf of closing the gender pay gap that one of the ways to close it would be to have everybody know in a workplace what everyone else makes. And then you'd be able to compare. And do you understand what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. And you've seen this too. Have you heard about this too? Yeah, yeah, sure. And there are some people who think it's a good idea. I still haven't decided. I mean, I'm still thinking about it. But it is it is coming up in conversation more and more in the non-Hollywood world. What I kind of raise my eyebrows at is that it implies in the, in the simplest terms, when we're describing it, I know we're being super basic for the purposes of clarity, it implies that if you had a workplace that was all single gender that everybody would be paid the same. It implies that there's no variety of skill level or talent between all women of a certain level. Like, was everybody on Facts of Life being paid the same? That's my super relevant reference, by the way. Um, the salaries for Ocean's 8. Don't we assume that they run up and down the scale? And isn't that okay? It's not about a gender gap, and I'm not trying to derail the discussion where it might be about a gender gap. It's about where each woman's profile falls in Hollywood. And there's no expectation that that, you know, that those salaries should be eight ways equal. Are, is there? No, I don't think that in that, like, I mean, if you're using the, if you're using the Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Eight example, then for sure, Sandra Bullock is presumably going to get paid more than... Helena Bonham Carter. Um, however, I think in real world workplaces, you're talking about management at one level. And what they're saying is that you will have titles that are the same, occupied by a man and a woman. And oftentimes the well, the suggestion is that the man is going to get more. Yeah. No, I I get that. You know, I get the sort of 77 cents on the dollar or 82 cents. I'm very into the places that are, you know, referencing, uh, that have sort of 82 cent sales uh, for women. I'm very interested in that. Uh, but I'm not sure this is that. I just, the, uh, the more I sit with House of Cards and the kind of show it is, I'm not sure this was about a gender pay gap as much as it was about a a star power pay gap. And, you know, then we could have a separate conversation if it's after the first season. If after the first season and you go, oh, this really is a thing and they really are a, they're a two-person unit. We need them both together. Or Coach and Tammy or, you know, whatever. Uh, 
Don Draper and Peggy, whatever you want, then you can kind of have that conversation and go, no, we are who we are. And you know, a show that gets a lot of flack, uh, but that actually were real leaders in the situation were, was Friends. Uh, when Friends was up for renewal, those six stars, I think initially among other variances, Courtney Cox was getting paid the most. She was the known quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time they got to the big time, they walked in lockstep and said, all of us or none of us. Yeah. Didn't Big Bang just do the same thing? Sort of. Yeah. They they sort of held out for uh, the two who were being paid less to kind of be bumped up more, although yeah. not to the level of the original three, right? I don't know. I mean, like, I th- that I'm, was the headline. Yeah. But the yeah. original three are still at a higher level okay. than, the, than the, but yes. Um, you know, so, so when it is, and the argument is in both cases, right, that the cohesiveness of the ensemble is what makes the show so great. And yeah, you could argue that for Friends, absolutely, or for Big Bang. Um, But I think at the beginning of a show, at the beginning of Shameless, the beginning of House of Cards, that's a harder argument to make. Um, And if I'm the sort of line producer who, or, or executive producer who's doling out the cash, I would say, show me your worth before I give you the money that's on par with the star that I lured away from the the silver screen to to star in my TV show. Am I a betrayal to my to my gender? No, I think you've made your case. Wow. That's two times and I don't think you agreed with me once today. So, on that note, thank you for joining us. We had lots of fun. Send us your emails, referee if necessary. (laughs) Uh, Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Leave your comments and we'll be back with more work next week. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.